Good afternoon. You are listening to Radio Boise. This is The Big Tent. I'm Justin Vaughn. I'm with Jen Schneider and Corey Cook. We're all from the School of Public Service at Boise State University. We're also joined today by Anne Helen Peterson, who's a journalist in, um, working in the West. She's based out of Montana, but covers the, the entire West um, and uh, writes for BuzzFeed. Um, Anne's going to talk, and Anne's going to talk a lot about uh, Idaho politics, covering Idaho politics, where we've been, where we're going, and uh, so there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to um, to talk about. But bef- kind of to prime that conversation, I wanted to t- do a little teaser from something she just posted, um, and a really interesting uh, article uh, or short article that's part of a series that just disappeared from my laptop because I'm not connected to the Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening live to radio. live radio, everybody. <laughs> uh, really interesting uh, piece uh, in Pacific Standard. It's called Postcards from America. And um, there's short 250 or so word vignettes from uh, every state in the country. And uh, it's beautifully written prose at the very end that I was going to read to you, but now I can't. Um, but Anne's going to maybe instead sum it up. So, Anne, Anne could you maybe Tell us the in a nutshell what that what what the postcard from Idaho that you wrote was. Oh, way to put me on the spot. Uh, so basically, it was a 250 word summary in many ways that was building on the the piece that I wrote about politics in North Idaho and specifically the GOP in North Idaho. Um, and that the title of that piece was "Welcome to Idaho, Now Go Home," and a lot of it was about the tensions in the old school GOP up there and uh, new uh, factions of the GOP, which are much more to the right and maybe not even what we consider Republicans, if we were thinking more schematically, you know, um, who have decided that they're going to take over the Republican Party and move it further to the right along with their beliefs and how that tribalism within the Kootenai County uh, Republican Central Committee specifically has led to a whole lot of alienation, disenfranchisement, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, thanks to the miracle of mobile technology and Jen's quick typing thumbs, we uh, we now have this on our uh, – uh, and so there's a great kind of ending to your, to your piece. And it says, today Idaho is one of the reddest states in the nation. And without Democratic opposition, these Californian conservatives, who you talked a little bit about earlier, far to the right of most native, native Idahoans, have taken over the GOP from the ground up practicing an exacting sort of tribalism in which anyone who doesn't toe the far right line is labeled a liberal, a rhino, or worse. Americans are increasingly migrating to places on the coasts and places like Idaho where they can be surrounded with those who who share their politics. Uh, But in the county commissioner meetings and the school board races and the letters to the editor and on Facebook, the result isn't political harmony, it's civil war. And you do a really great job in that article that um, we tweeted out our, our, our Twitter handle is Big, Big Tent, Tent Radio. Radio at Big Tent Radio, and we t- our most recent tweet is a link to Ann's article. So I strongly encourage you to read it. But um, but you really talk about the civil war that kind of is happening in uh, the Republican Party in, in deep red Kootenai County. Yeah, like I think it belies what most people think when they say like, oh, red state, like Trump won by so many points. They think that somehow like Idaho is this monolith where like all of the Republicans are on the same page, (laughs) which is absolutely not the case. And, you know, if you look at places in California that are super liberal, it's not the case there either. You know, there are these warring factions trying to decide what the future of the Democratic Party is. And a lot of it points to just like uh, the the failures in the two-party system, 
uh, the ways that like there are all these different groups that could feasibly you know, make coalitions together, but then also run on their own platforms. But because that historically has not worked, you know, a lot of these people were people who would run as libertarians and now are, or as constitutionalists, and are now, you know, taking over the GOP. Right. Yeah. They're the and what's the word uh, is maybe in the in the other title the uh, in the in, oh man. There's a great evocative term describing these maybe more radical people. And, and, and wackadoodles. Wackadoodles, right. <laughs> so okay. that's a right. term used by... Uh, a political science term. Right? <laughs> one of the people who was more to the, the middle and who has stuck around in the uh, Central Committee just to try to, like, keep things in line. But the, the way that he describes the people on the farther right is he calls them wackadoodles. Well, can I ask a question about that? I mean, it, uh, speaking of wackadoodles, I wonder to what extent you think what's happening in North Idaho is a microcosm for sort of national politics. Are you willing to, to make that leap? Or do you think it's, the scale is different? Oh, I think the tribalism is the same for sure. I think the concerns are a little different. So like, some of the things that legislators that are concerned about up there are um, like raw milk and the, the, the legislation of raw milk. Uh, other things include, uh, like, the thing that actually caught my eye that made me think, oh, something's going on with the Kootenai County GOP was a story where they tried to pass, and they, they did pass a resolution condemning the sanctions against Russia and affirming Russia's role in resisting globalist forces. So that's like a little more on the John Birch side of mm -hmm. um, the people who were up there. And like, that's why it was, it took me a really long time to write this story. I went there three times, spent three weeks, like, um, because it's not even like within the far, far right, there's the John Birchers, there's the super uh, conservative Catholics who are pre Vatican II, who think that, you know, Pope Francis is an apostate. Uh, and there are people who are just more on like the, the readout. Mm -hmm. uh, prepping kind of uh, individual rights side of things as well. So what, what I really like about this article, and I mean, it's interesting. There's a it's, a, it's part of the state where it doesn't get as much attention down here in Boise. Uh, but what, what was really great about it is um, how well you reported it. You took multiple trips there and you may, and by, by reporting it in a way that's maybe a little bit different than what we usually see in political journalism, uh, you uh, uncovered this fascinating kind of human story of, individuals that have kind of cultural clout in a community and, and, and how people follow them and how they bully their, their, I mean, it's hard to call an, a fellow, maybe conservative Republican, an opponent, but bully their, oh, their opponent. Opponents. Oh yeah. Right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and so, um, and, and I think that that story happens all over the world, not just in politics and every, in any kind of institution. Right. But, yeah. um, can you, can you talk a little bit more about that without getting any of a suit? Yeah, uh, I, well, part of it is I'm from North Idaho, okay. you know, like that made it really easy to describe the the special feeling that North Idaho has towards the rest of the state. You know, even that phrase North Idaho mm -hmm. instead of Northern Idaho is an incredibly loaded, like it, North Idaho considers itself different. Um, and even, you know, I'm from Lewiston 
And people up in Cody County, they don't consider Lewiston part of North Idaho like because North. Oh, yeah. for them, that only because that means you have to consider Moscow part of North Idaho, mm-hmm. which is way, you know, that's a travesty. Because um, it's so liberal being yeah, a college town. Yeah. It's the Moscow that they don't like. There. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> um, and... The other thing was that I approach these stories not necessarily as a political reporter, but as a cultural reporter. So I was never trained as a as a journalist, for one, but I was never trained as a political reporter where you really want to talk more with the politicians and, you know, have yeah. that sort of access. And my thing was always like, let me talk to people who are directly affected by these things. But, you know, in the nitty gritty of the Central Committee up there. Yeah. And 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 I think that that helps explain like the why that piece worked so well and was so, and was so different. You are though talking to some of these politicians and the and the Idaho uh, races especially the gubernatorial race that we we have coming up. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll talk more about, you know, how you're covering Idaho gubernatorial uh, election that many of us are really watching, you know, closely and 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 hear your thoughts on that. Right. So we'll be back in just one moment. KRBX and we are back. You're listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. I'm here with Jen and Corey from the School of Public Service at Boise State University. And this week we have Ann Helen Peterson, a journalist who writes for BuzzFeed, um, with us. And we've been talking about her coverage of Idaho politics. So um, you're, you've, you've been covering the gubernatorial. You've come around. You've, you've spent some time with the Alquist campaign, studying and you know, you know, writing about them. You are in town on another reporting trip this week. Uh, what, what, what do you see that, um, that maybe our listeners might be interested in as, this, as we get closer and closer to May 15th? Hmm. I mean, I think the fascinating thing on the Republican side is this – determination to be like, no, I'm the most conservative. No, I'm the most conservative. And how those attempts to establish that authenticity actually might undercut the authenticity. So like in the Alquist campaign in particular, the fact that he has had to try to claim that, okay, I, you know, just because I donated to Democratic camp, you know, causes, like I'm not a Democrat and has swerved further to the right which I think has perhaps alienated some voters who were looking for a more moderate GOP candidate. Because right now, like, there's not a ton for that voter or for Democrats who have registered as Republicans to vote in, in that election. Do you anticipate a lot of that, Democrats crossing over? I mean, I talk to a lot of people all the time, like, in my reporting, who say that they have done it. Um, and I think this it, this is a weird election, though, because usually... They do that because there's no competition on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. And this time there's there's a real choice in terms of a Democratic candidate. So, so it's an interesting dynamic, right, because it's a closed primary race. And so obviously all the energy and focus on the Republican side is a one-party state. I, I study California politics, mm-hmm. and we've got the opposite in, in different contexts, which is uh, they have a, a, a top two primary. So the first two candidates advance to the general. And so many Democrats were excited about knocking off Republicans <coughs> in suburban Los Angeles districts that they may not even field candidates in some of these races that they need to pick up um, in, in, in some of the... So, so really um, you know, vulnerable Republicans are actually potentially going to face another Republican in the general because <laughs> Democrats are so 
they haven't gotten their stuff together, right. basically, um, which is interesting to see. And so this question of crossover voting. But you know, in California, what we've learned is when you have these top two primaries, which is, again, the equivalent of, of, of um, you know, a, a closed primary of the Democrat coming in, you have two, two Republicans running against each other. The Democratic vote never matters or two Democrats running against each other. Republican vote doesn't matter because it turns out they can't decide who's the most moderate between right. the two. So they end up voting just like they were Democrats or just like they were Republicans. So it hasn't actually produced more moderation. So I'm wondering for these Democrats who are planning to play in the Republican primary, if it will actually have an effect or whether they're going to end up voting essentially like they were Republicans. Is there a clear enough difference between the, the three candidates that Democrats will actually make a difference in the Republican primary? Um, I think that... Uh, liberals and progressives who have registered as Republicans feel pretty strongly against uh, Labrador. Mm -hmm. And so whether they're voting for Alquist, who like some of his uh, policies on education, I think have alienated some some Democrats. Um, so it seems like, you know, Brad Little might not have the charisma, but he does seem like he's a fairly straightforward um, and non-dynamic sort of candidate who will do a good job of legislating. Is he not engaging as much in the race to the right that you mentioned? Earlier? I haven't seen it as much. I uh, know. Uh, how does that play out with a contended Democratic primary? So, again, the so Democrats now are losing out on the opportunity to choose their own nominee. Hmm. I mean, so I people that I've talked to about the, the Democratic primary really have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> And there's not a lot of campaigning going on, mm -hmm. as far as I can see. There's not a lot of fundraising. Um, you know, there's a Paula Jordan event this Friday. But I think, like, it's it's really unclear which way it's going to go. And Paula Jordan is really – she has a lot of national excitement. Like, when I tell people – like, when I mention her name, people nationally know who she is. That's I mean, it's really uh, significant that this is the first woman running to be – you know, first Native American running to be a governor. And also, I've heard people frame it in terms of this was after, like, what happened in Alabama with Roy Moore. Like, you always have to have your best possible candidate there. Or, you know, you have to have someone who's going to run not just as, like, a placeholder. You should have someone that you actually believe in and want to vote for. It seemed to matter in the election in Pennsylvania just, just this week. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, um you, well, you mentioned a moment ago about the uh, national. Uh, it's it's interesting how it's shaping up. There's just a story today that came out and it was about um, and some endorsements that are finally starting to roll out on the Democratic side. And so Paulette Jordan has um, received the support from an organization called Democracy for America. It's a left-leaning organization that's active in multiple Democratic gubernatorial nomination races right now. Um, and then uh, so it's outside money coming in, you know, um, from to Idaho. And then you have A.J. Blukoff, who's received the endorsements from um, legislators like uh, McCrosty, King, Chu, Jordan, and Ward Engelking. Um, and so you've got the Idaho, I guess, Democratic establishment, to the extent that those words make sense together, um, lining up with one <laughs> candidate and kind of national money coming in, lining up with a, 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 the other candidate that's relatively new to, to politics, but is um, creating... You know, probably a big enthusiasm gap, right? That was a word right. we used to hear a lot with the Obama oh, Romney races. Um, big enthusiasm gap, um, and uh, it, and it makes a kind of a fascinating transaction, right? Until this young, dynamic, n relatively new to the to the political scene candidate got into the race, if you were a 
disaffected Democratic voter and you wanted to count, cast a vote that might count, you're going to change your party status. You're going to mm-hmm. go in, into the Republican primary. But all of a sudden, now you've got an interesting, competitive kind of two di- very different kinds of Democrats mm-hmm. running against against each other in the primary that anything could happen. Right. And so um, I, I'm, I'm curious that, you know, of the I don't know, maybe maybe thousands of people who would have who would have switched parties and thousands of people could make a difference in this close mm-hmm. three way Republican primary. What percentage of those said, oh, hold off, I'm going to keep my Democratic, um, you know, uh, registration and I'm going to vote uh, for this new candidate that is, you know, rock bands are throwing music or throwing fundraisers for and are getting this national attention and are doing really con- is really connecting with kind of what seems to be kind of a, the zeitgeist of the, right. of the left right you now. You forgot to mention the share endorsement. The most you, important uh, of all you, in Idaho politics. I think you actually classed Cher as a rock star, which is way more the no, problem. Like Bill 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 I didn't feel <laughs> personally <laughs> qualified <laughs> to mention Cher, actually. Um, that's, uh, I'm very, uh, yeah, we'll self-censored. Later. <laughs> what, what is Cher's record of endorsements Predictions. in Idaho? Well, well, you, know, you know what's actually interesting is Cher does have a history of appropriating Native culture, so like, that <laughs> is an interesting tension. Um, but then, okay, so let's say you get the, the Democratic candidate that you want, right, whether mm-hmm. that, you know, on either side, but if that person is running against the Republican that you don't want, mm-hmm. like, let's say the Labrador gets in, you know, like, you know, Labrador is going to win this race. Right. Almost and, positively. And so we saw just a few days ago in, in Ohio, we've seen the last few cycles where there's a, a race that a Republican should win that they don't win because they nominate someone way far to the right. Right. And a milquetoast, middle of the road Democrat is able to just be normal and win the election. Right. But if you've got a Republican populist and a Democratic populist, you, you might have, you know, still let this person who's too... Out of the out of the mainstream to right. um, to uh, to to ordinarily win win because you know they cancel each other out in a way yeah, yeah. it's interesting we'll see we'll see more in, in a few weeks on how how these things turn out um, we're gonna uh, take another quick ba- break we'll be back in a moment and we'll we'll talk more with Ann Helen Peterson you're listening to Radio Boise uh, KRBX eighty nine point nine FM and uh, stay with us. And we're back. This is Justin Vaughn. I'm with Corey Cook and Jen Schneider. We are the co-hosts of The Big Tent here on Radio Boise. We have with us today uh, Ann Helen Peterson, writer for BuzzFeed. Uh, We've been talking about Idaho politics, about her work um, covering North Idaho politics, about the gubernatorial primary. And uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit and do what we've been doing kind of towards the end of the last several shows that we've done um, and uh, talk a little bit about um, what you've been reading, what you've been thinking about. You're our victim this weekend, so... uh, what 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 uh, what's caught your mind? Uh, so I read this great article by this author named Sarah Smarsh, who is from Kansas originally, and her work a lot of it is about uh, reclaiming our understanding of uh, working class from a, a different understanding than just like let's spend a week in West Virginia and like talk about Trump voters and be like poverty tourism. Or yeah, something. or like have you changed your mind yet? Yeah, have you changed your mind yet? <laughs> uh, and her piece was kind of specifically about the the West Virginia teachers strike but about 
female teachers in general who are not generally considered part of the working class uh, because their income level or because they don't like hold things in their hands <laughs> to do their work, but who not only are involved in you know, labor movements, but also have a long history of radical thought and progressive belief. And so what she was really advocating for, not just in the way that we conceive of these West Virginia women, but also in all of these other states, is to stop painting these states as red states with this huge, broad brush. And it really resonated with me just being at the student walkout yesterday. And, uh, you know, I took a bunch of footage and tweeted a bunch of photos and people read this or saw this and they're like, I can't believe there's students in Idaho walking out. Like, that's gun country. And it's just such a limited understanding, not just of Idaho, but, you know, like in, and also those walkouts happen not just in Boise, right? Like they were in Idaho Falls. They were in Kalispell, Montana. They were all over in more rural areas than just liberal Boise. So I guess the thing that I, that I loved about it is encouraging journalists, readers, thinkers to stop thinking in terms of red and blue states. Yeah, that's so interesting. I was thinking about some um, work I've done on the coal industry, and I used to show the old documentary Harlan County, USA. If you haven't seen that, you can watch it for free now, stream it online. Uh, That is wild, but it really points to the incredible history of sort of labor movements and progressive commitments, um, I think, that have been typical for those parts of the world where they've really seen the effects of policies that... um, you know, whether it's big business or the government, um, and they fight back pretty hard. Yeah. So it's great to great to understand that history. Yeah. yeah. And where was that piece again, so people oh, can it find it? Oh, it's in the cut, which is part of uh, New York Magazine. Okay. Great. We're gonna tweet it out later. Okay. Gonna tweet how it. Many, out. How many followers do we have? Now? <laughs> we have four, and Next two time. of them are Jen and I. You, actually, <laughs> Corey, you don't even follow us. I hear <laughs> a Twitter challenge, Twitter? listeners. Yeah, Twitter challenge. We um, want to do another one. A, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right, we uh, we we um, if you like us on we'll Twitter, leave a school public service backpack will we'll, be coming your way. Uh, yeah, if, b- delightful. I hope that's not a deterrent. That should <laughs> should be a motivator. Get a free orange backpack. Yeah, free orange backpack. Just uh, follow us on Twitter and send us a message with your address, and we will put it in the mail. So uh-huh. I was going to ask you about the following the the student walkout yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this the start of of sort of a political? Um, activism among younger people. I mean, historically, un, you know, obviously didn't vote. Uh, high school students are too young, but they, sort of the younger students to the 25 age population didn't vote in the previous election, haven't been engaged politically. Is this the start of a political engagement of that population, or is this sort of a, a short term? What's your sense from being there? I mean, there? there was a massive tent outside of the walkout yesterday. Was it a big registering tent? Registering re- <laughs> a big old uh, tent. Yeah, we, clearly, we got to change our name to the massive, massive tent. <laughs> There's registering voters. And then there were also people who were involved in the Medicaid expansion uh, ballot initiative, and they collected tons of signatures. Interesting. Uh, so it's and, not just about outrage, it's about organization. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, and it's significant that the the students who organized this walkout and the, the speeches, which were from all different sorts of perspectives and uh, um, representations, uh, they were also the students who organized the Women's March. Yeah. You know, like they have this infrastructure in place. And once they're training more students to do this sort of thing, and social media is also an incredible training ground for them. You know, like you can 
in a way that was simply not possible when I was a student in North Idaho at the time of Columbine. You can take signals and reproduce events and protest styles and memes and and um, the way that we couldn't. So I think it is the start of something. Yeah, I've also been struck by their style of communication. Like when uh, you see video of some of those activists, they are convicted. Right. Also, most of them are theater kids. Uh, theater kids. I mean, not that like just. The Should we talk about they're... Hamilton I think again? It's time to talk about Hamilton. So. <laughs> just their poise and their ability to, you yeah. know. Well, and also there's this whole racial aspect. As many mm-hmm. of this, the Parkland students are white or or white passing, um, and what there's a tendency I think for the media and for other people to take them more seriously and not to conceive of their anger as rage or inappropriate or dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a sort of privilege to that access. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. All right. We have two and a half. Is that what you're saying? Well, that was a... Sorry. That was a Can failed, you speak? A speak failed to us. nonverbal cue. Uh, <laughs> I, I, have one, I have one more question that yeah, I would love. Great, I would great, love. Great radio. Thanks, everybody. Radio. We're professionals. <laughs> We're getting better every week, guys. So, it might not seem like it, but we are. Okay. So I have a question for you, that, and it's putting you on the spot, so you okay. can just fit if you want. But I uh, saw that you have a PhD and that you wrote a dissertation on celebrity gossip. Is that right? <laughs> I do. I do. So do your dissertation in 30 seconds. Let's what if I just was that. like, no, I'm not going to answer. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine, too. No, no, no. no. I have a You're PhD. You're going to tweet out your dissertation I have as well, a PhD. So. You can tweet out my dissertation line by line. I have a PhD in media studies, and my dissertation was on the history of celebrity gossip. And so what that means is looking at the last hundred years, the way that it was produced and disseminated and consumed, all that sort of thing. So starting at the old fan magazines, going up to TMZ. Um, it is useful. People click on my articles because they're about celebrity. When I'm not writing about Western politics, I'm writing about celebrities. So it's a good way to get BuzzFeed to let me live in the West and write about the West. <laughs> when we are glad that you do. Thanks for visiting us. And unfortunately for us, maybe fortunately for our listeners, that's it for the day. Uh, <laughs> thank you for listening to The Big Tent. We'll be back next week, I think. Uh, and um, no, no, next week. Oh, next we week's tree for it, y'all. Yeah, right. They yeah. have a built-in excuse to cancel our show. <laughs> we'll so, be erecting an um, enormous tent, however. Yeah, so massive that. tent. Massive tent. Uh, in the middle of the festival. So uh, look for it. And uh, like us at, at, at Big Tent Radio um, if you want a free orange backpack. All right. Have a great day.